This episode of The Labor of Love is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code REALSIMPLE at checkout to get 10% off. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of realsimple.com. Even though we've made some great strides in terms of gender equality at home and in the workplace in the past decades, studies show that in 2016, women are still spending an average of four and a half hours a day on unpaid work, which is more than double the time that men spend. What can be done to change this? One project that has helped spark discussion about the unfair division of household labor is the Global Chore Challenge, which asked partners to swap chores for two weeks and share their experiences on social media using the hashtag Chore Challenge. The challenge kicked off at the beginning of this year, and today we're checking in with two of its organizers to see how it went and what they learned. I'd like to welcome Ashita Srivastava. Deputy Director of Programs at Breakthrough U.S., a global human rights organization. And I'd also like to welcome Soraya Shimali, a media critic and activist whose work focuses on the role of gender and culture, politics, religion, and media. Hi, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the logistics of the chore challenge. You asked families to keep a two-week log of activities and chores record which family member is primarily responsible for each chore, and then gender swap the household tasks. So what was the genesis of this idea? How did you come up with it, and what were you hoping to find out? I write a lot about gender in politics and uh, in the workplace, and the genesis of the idea really came from years of reading research and writing about these topics and coming to the conclusion, like I think so many people do when you do this work, that inequality really begins and is perpetuated in the home. And so we're not really just talking about heterosexual couples, but all kinds of family configurations tend to distribute chores along very gendered lines. So there are quote unquote women's jobs and quote-unquote men's jobs. And when you really start to see how that labor is distributed in the house, particularly when it comes to how we teach children to kind of perform gender and do gendered work, it can be very impactful. And so at the end of last year in December, I was thinking a lot about these things, and I thought, you know, it would be very interesting. How could you raise awareness of what that looks like in each family? regardless of its composition. Generally speaking, only single-parent homes violate those norms. So, Sarai, you said you used a word a few moments ago where you said that the chores were often distributed along gender lines. And I feel like they're not even distributed. It's just assumed that there's, in my own family, both the family I grew up in and the family I have right now, I don't think anyone ever sat down and said that I was going to be the one to plan all the play dates and my husband was going to be the one to right. go grocery shopping on Sunday morning. But it's just kind of the way it happened. It also, I didn't, you know, wasn't told that I should give my daughter the role of folding the laundry and my son the role of taking out the trash. But somehow it just kind of happens. And I think that's part of your right. point. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that what happens is because we're tired and it's a practical necessity to get this work done, we by default reproduce these relationships, right? And we don't think about it unless we think about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so okay, so the taking the chore challenge hopefully got people thinking about it. I know you had people tweet at you, and I know that you had people hashtag in sort of their thoughts and feelings and results with the hashtag chore challenge. What what did you hear from people out there who were trying to do this and see how it worked? What, there were several things that, that struck me about the hashtag and, and articles that were written about it later. I was very heartened to see many people, and I think this is part of the self-selection and awareness of this issue in general, but many people saying, hey, you know, in our house, we're really trying to make sure this doesn't happen. But at the same time, there were many other people who thought this was silly, right? This is ridiculous. This is a first world problem. And clearly it's not, right? Because we're talking about globally in almost every society, the fact that girls and women are doing a minimum of two hours more unpaid labor a week. And that affects education. It affects work. It, it has a very strong ripple effect through society. But there, there is this tendency to trivialize it and to say, you know, focus on feminists need to focus on more important things, which always kind of gives gives me a kick. <laughs> and then the third thing was how many people said, you know, I've never thought about that. As you just pointed out, we just need to get things done. And by default, we tend to turn girls into mommy's little helper, right? Which is a totally unconscious transfer of this notion that girls should be supportive and should provide help and, and labor that way. But unless you put it that way, it's just traditional. So, Ashita, I'm curious, you are part of a global human rights organization. What made Breakthrough and you want to participate in this? Why did you think that it was an important issue to tackle? So when Soraya contacted us about the Chore Challenge, we obviously you know, really jumped at the chance to um, collaborate on this because our work really focuses around the culture that we all live in that enables gender-based violence and discrimination to happen. And that culture is explicit sometimes and often it's implicit in the ways that we're just talking about in these assumptions, in these norms that we live with that are ways in which we are expected or assumed to behave and act and perform and show up in the world. And as Soraya said, that starts at home. And so our work at Breakthrough really is to use stories to talk about the ways in which gender norms play out in our lives, and then to use stories to actually challenge those norms and to transform those norms. So, of course, this this was a perfect, um, perfect place for us to jump in. We recently launched, right before Soraya contacted us in early December, we launched an interactive project and platform called The G Word, which is a storytelling platform where we invite people to share their personal stories of their everyday experiences with gender norms and then to sort of, through storytelling, um, kind of challenge those norms and then also kind of imagine the world that we can want to live in. And so as a result of the Cho Challenge, we got people actually sharing stories of how, for the first time, they were thinking about the way they had had to carry out chores in their house and how gendered those were. Can you give us any specific examples of people that that use the platform to tell those stories? 
Yeah, so I mean, two that come to mind, I'll use those because one of them is actually very explicit. So this this woman who's in her, I think, 40s wrote to us, and she said that when she was, it was very clearly when she was nine years old, that her grandmother sat her down and told her that from this time on, she has to stop playing outside with her brothers because she's kind of moving into a different phase of her life. And in this phase of her life, as a woman, she has to stay at home. She has to help with chores around the house. She has to sew. Um, what was her cultural background? Do you know? She is Caucasian-American, and this this was an American story. I think she grew up uh, in Texas. And so her story was how, she, you know, this was a, a moment, a rite of passage, where she could no longer play outside with her brothers and had to do this work at home. So that was one story. And then we got another story from someone, I think she's 22 or 23 now, also in the U.S. And her story was about how, you know, it wasn't, it was sort of not so explicit in her case, but she kind of pointed out how her brother got more allowance than she did because he was expected to take his girlfriends out. And somehow that allowance was then connected to the chores they did in the house. And she always felt like it was an unfair distribution of allowance <laughs> and of chores. So that was Seems really like it, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things, this notion that, that comes up in the chore challenge and something that you ask people to take note of, which I found really, really interesting, was this idea of emotional chores, that that was something that you had asked people to log. And when I started thinking about what that meant, and, and well, first, maybe, Soraya, can you define emotional chores for the uh, listeners? The business of managing emotions and of also subsuming one's own emotions so that you're sort of performing in ways that add value to Uh, an environment, your home or your business, for example. And so a lot of the work that women do at home is emotional labor. So we do things that don't count, that aren't valued, but that are enormously effective and valuable in relationships and, and, and keeping the structure of families and society alive. So things like remembering birthdays, taking care of parties and celebrations and rites of passage, making sure that everybody's happy, uh, thinking about those things constantly in the background. And we see that move seamlessly into the workplace, where in, for example, office environments, people are kind of count, there's usually like a, a den mother figure, right? Someone who is doing that work, and they are planning the parties, they are thinking about the gifts, they are also often responsible for things like cleaning up after everybody. And we know from studies over and over again that in the workplace, again, that labor is uncompensated. It's unrecognized. It's not valued, but it's integral to cultures. I want to have emotional laborer added to my business card. <laughs> that is like yeah, my I favorite think that's a good idea. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting to me what you're saying, because there is a lot that falls under the category of emotional labor that kind of, you touched on this, but it seems to like keep society moving, meaning that if you, you know, just to extrapolate a little bit, if you forget you know, people's birthdays, then people are going to get upset and then people aren't going to feel appreciated. And if you, you know, if you're not the one who's thinking about the care for your elderly parent or your young child, you know, things start to fall apart. And I do think, and obviously we know there's research to back this up, that a lot of those details automatically fall to females. 
Yes. In the tour challenge kind of tweets you got and also in the diaries that you got, what was one of the emotional chores that people seemed to, that came up again and again? Um, I think a lot of what we just talked about, actually, this idea that someone's always going to be thinking about the play dates and the gifts and Santa, right? Like these things just happen and people expect them to somehow come out of thin air. But not only do they take time and effort, but they they also take psychic energy and are really exhausting, right? And so people talked a lot about traditions that that, that uh, during times of traditional celebration, there's a lot more demand for that kind of labor from women in their own homes. Traditions came up over and over again because you want to be able to be happy and participate in traditions, but you don't want to allow traditions to perpetuate inequalities which right. often end up being the case. And if you confront those inequalities and and you say something about it, very often the person who objects ends up being thought of as disagreeable or unhappy or difficult, right? So you really need people within the family to recognize what's going on and to step up as, an, as a sort of internal ally and say, hey, this isn't fair. Let's do it this other way. Ashita, what are some of the ways in which, if we if we talk about the need to kind of slowly but surely dismantle this system uh, in the home, so that hopefully it it you know resonates out into the world? What are some of the ways that you think, or do you think that the way in which we are brought up and the way in which our households run, whether we are in the United States or elsewhere in the world, how does that ripple out into society? How does that play out in our professional lives, in our sex lives, in our you know lives as individuals? There's actually a lot of interesting research around men and masculinity that is tied very directly to men's violence against women. And that's that's not specifically necessarily around chores, but sort of the whole gamut of the norms that men are sort of told they have to conform to both in school and in the home as they're growing up are what then play out when they're having relationships and when they, you know, the flip side to the emotional labor is that the men are never expected to carry out these emotional, the more, carry out the weight of the emotional labor in their homes and that actually translates into when they're supposed to have relationships and bring up children. Mm-hmm. A really specific sort of uh, example is something that came up um, when we were doing the Twitter chats around the chore challenge, which was there was a study in 2014 that said that dads that split the housework at home raise girls that are more ambitious. And and this is, I think, from the University of British Columbia. It was a study in 2014, and it said that fathers often, in kind of more heteronormative families, fathers often act as gatekeepers uh, for their daughters' aspirations. Mm-hmm. And girls that see their fathers splitting the housework kind of think way more broadly around what they could do. Um, we often don't think about how these assumed um, and sort of implicit roles carry out in our lives, but they have a huge effect on how people think of themselves and how they kind of how we all live up to our full potential. I think also another study that you just reminded me of is that I think we've seen research that shows that men who do more housework have more sex with their wives and that that's a pretty obvious correlation there that women who are less stressed and have less 
on their plate are probably, I'm assuming, more open to having sex and have more time. So you would think that, you know, that would be an incentive. (laughs) Good incentive, right? (laughs) Maybe we should, the next challenge should be that, like, (laughs) if you you do more. Um, What... One thing I thought was interesting, I wanted to see what you each had to say about this, was that so that according to figures from the Office of National Statistics, men's life expectancy is growing faster than women's. And there's speculation that this could have to do with the fact that women are being worn out so much on the work and family front with all of the commitments and the kinds of things that they're in charge of. Have you taken a look at those statistics or do you happen to, do you have an opinion on whether that seems true to you? I have. Women have much higher rates of fatigue, generally speaking, than men do. And this is related from the perspective of gender-based violence. And all of these things are very connected. But women also tend to have much higher levels of hypervigilance for a variety of reasons because they're less physically secure in general. And they suffer from high levels, increasingly now being understood in these terms, of post-traumatic stress and insidious trauma. Women's experience of gender-based violence, whether or not they've been assaulted, just kind of avoiding it in ways that people don't often consider, is now being really understood to have as great, if not greater, effect in terms of trauma on women as participation in war does on men which strikes people, I think, as a little extreme, but is accurate. So I think there are lots of reasons for the fatigue that women are are experiencing and certainly trying to do two or sometimes three shifts in terms Mm -hmm. of labor that's paid and unpaid can only be contributing to that. Do you have anything to add? One of the stories that we we received on the G Word was from a woman who is the sole breadwinner in her household in in a um, hetero, heterosexual family she's a sole breadwinner she runs her own company and and so and yet she feels the pressure to do a lot of the emotional labor in the family and so how how do we kind of shift that to give that emotional labor value and to quantify it in a way that then it can be transferred to fathers who often you know, don't even consider it um, as something that needs to be taken on. And so I think as so many more women globally are working, kind of working full-time jobs and yet doing a lot of the labor at home, that's just one way in which sort of the deep inequality in the household is is apparent, and, I'm, and that's having a huge effect on uh, on women's lives and health. I'm a digital editor. I work in front of a computer all day long. And when I see sites that are poorly designed and difficult to navigate, you know what I do? I leave, I close the window, and I never come back. I just don't have time. When I see a site, though, that's designed beautifully and is easy to navigate and is colorful and clean, like the sites that I know are designed by people through Squarespace, then I stay, then I hang out there, Then I'm impressed with the person who made them. Squarespace has sites that look professionally designed regardless of your skill level, and there's no coding required. They're easy to use tools, and if you sign up for one year, you get a free domain. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code REALSIMPLE to get 10% off your first purchase. So 
Something I hear a lot from friends and colleagues of the female persuasion when we get to talking about this issue in our own homes and marriages is you often get to the end of these conversations and I hear someone say, and it maybe might be me, might not be, that, you know, it's just easier to do it myself because my partner is not going to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and get it all done. And so... I'm just going to do it and simmer with resentment. What do you say to that? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really common refrain. So I will add something to that that I found deeply disturbing. There was a study done in 2014. It was a pretty good sample size. It was 2,000 people. And it found that 30% of men deliberately botched domestic duties uh, so that their Mm -hmm. spouses would do the jobs themselves. I feel like all the people in that 30% need to be named and put like their faces <laughs> like in wanted posters on the internet so that their partners know exactly what's going on. Like that's just but, not know, okay. That's a really high number, right? Yeah. I mean, it's an amazingly high number. And they are kind of getting away with it. And a quarter of them said that they are no longer asked to do chores, which was the objective. And another almost 70% we're like, yeah, I just get asked now and then. And so, you know, I, I think that that's kind of a scary fact yeah. <laughs> because we really need this to happen in homes. Yeah. And I just like to add that, you know, the the thing about this, this statistic, which is extremely disturbing, is that it's kind of you, most people would kind of laugh it laugh about it like it's culturally acceptable if the same thing was happening with in the reverse uh, around childcare it would not be culturally acceptable and i think a lot of this the work that really needs to be done around gender <laughs> equality is to start by making things culturally unacceptable and that you know all that has to begin with men and young boys when they're at home, when they're young boys, or and when they're in school, because these things are taught, um, they're taught that it's okay. It's not only that they'll get away with it, but that it's, it's kind of funny and okay because it's not really their job. Yeah, and so okay. In our last few minutes, how do we do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this is um, this is a question. I mean, like I said, I think a lot of these things have to be done when. All of us are very young at home. I think parents and teachers and pop culture, there's a lot of ways in which we get messages about the ways we're supposed to be based on our gender or the ways, the things we can get away with based on our gender. Um, And so, and that's not to say that these things don't change later on. These things get reinforced throughout our lives. But I think that it's very important that we even start by acknowledging these things as cultural norms that cause harm. You know, things like the church challenge, this is not things people think about at all. They don't think, parents don't even think that they're doing this. Schools don't think about it when they give messages to boys and girls about what's acceptable behavior on the playground for a boy versus what's acceptable behavior on a playground for a girl. Starting by acknowledging the inequalities and the inequities in this and then the harms that they cause and really shifting the way we think about them when we're dealing with our kids is a really important first step. You know, part of the reason, again, for doing this was to just make people step back and think about it because we know from surveys in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., in Australia, 
in time use surveys and, and, and other research all over the world that still boys are paid more often. They're paid an allowance more often. They are paid more when kids are paid. And they also are given jobs that can be marketed outside of the home more frequently. So aside from babysitting, there are not a lot of, you know, girls' jobs like folding laundry or doing dishes that can be outsourced. And so they don't become something that can be more broadly commodified later. And this is just kind of happening invisibly. And kids know that it's not fair. You know, they understand that. But until parents and teachers can think hard about what's happening unintentionally usually they can't really change it so we're really hoping that the chore challenge can provoke people to take that step back and and look at what's happening in their own homes so i'm going to institute it tonight at my house and i will tweet <laughs> both of you and let you know awesome. what's happened in two weeks um ashita that would be good. <laughs> yeah ashita thanks so much for being here soraya thank you too thank you thank you very much for having us Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you'd like to do the chore challenge, and I'm going to do it myself, and I'll report back, you can find out more about it at us.breakthrough.tv. Email me at tlolpodcast at gmail.com to tell me how it went. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.